Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. I am Tom Salemi. Seven years ago, Dr. Audrey Talley Rostov was scheduled to give a keynote address at a meeting in India. Then the terror attacks in Mumbai canceled that meeting. Rather than cancel her own trip, Dr. Tally Rostov reached out to SightLife, a global health organization whose mission it is to cure corneal blindness worldwide. She offered to help, and she did, spending those three weeks teaching advanced vision-restoring procedures to local surgeons. Today, Audrey spent a few minutes with OIS Podcast, discussing her work with SightLife across the globe, as well as her participation in corneal cross-linking clinical trials back in the U.S., Hi, Audrey. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, a cross-linking has made, uh, made the news of late. Uh, an FDA advisory committee uh, just recently recommended approval for Avidro's uh, cross-linking system that's, uh, it's, that's been gone before the FDA a few times before. So it's obviously big news for Avidro and big news for cross-linking. I know you've had some, uh, you've been involved in cross-linking trials and uh, not necessarily for Avidro, but I was hoping you could just give a little color to what an approval of, of cross-linking overall could mean for uh, the U.S., where it hasn't been available, whereas it has been available overseas. Well, uh, collagen cross-linking is a really, really important um, technique uh, for helping to prevent the progression of corneal ectasia, whether that be corneal ectasia from keratoconus or post-LASIK ectasia. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be on the uh, Preferred Practice Patterns Committee with the American Academy of Ophthalmology and actually wrote the new Preferred Practice Pattern on treating corneal ectasia. It's the diagnosis and treatment and in reviewing literally hundreds of references, there is no doubt that collagen cross-linking uh, is the way to prevent the progression. Um, there's no doubt in the literature that it prevents progression of ectasia and is a very, very important uh, tool uh, that we can use for treating patients with keratoconus. Uh, and really, the earlier, the better. Um, it has really been fairly tragic for patients in the U.S. that we have not been able to uh, utilize this. Uh, fortunately for those of us in clinical trials, we've had this uh, technique to be able to offer to patients for the last several years. But patients in Europe have had access for this for the last about 13 or 14 years. And the 10-year study just came out from the European trials. Um, I'm in this collagen cross-linking the uh, CXL-USA trial. We do epithelial on collagen cross-linking, and we've done, uh, I personally have done several hundred patients over the last few years, and it is amazing. In medicine, we're really, really good about treating disease. We're really good about treating disease, but it's very, very rare that we can actually prevent a disease from progressing. And collagen cross-linking allows us to do that, and the earlier, the better. And I think it is so important for our patients to have access uh, to this technology. We, we don't make light of it necessarily, but you know the, the difficulties with the FDA you know, obviously come up during the meetings, and, and Avidro's you know been again before uh, before the FDA a few times. How frustrating! You, you said it is frustrating. You use the word frustrating, but as a physician. 
What is it like to have the data that supports the technology to, to see that it works elsewhere, to have patients who need it, and you're not able to give it to them unless you've got access to these clinical trials? What is that process like as a physician, as someone who, you know, your job is to, to help these people and you don't have the tools that you need to do it? Uh, it's very, it's very, very frustrating, and it feels really, really unfair to the patients. Um, before I was an investigator in the CXL USA trial, I had to send patients out of state. Or um, years ago, I actually used to send them out of the country. I used to send them, in fact, to Europe uh, to oh. be able to access the technology, and that's if the patient can afford it. Uh, you know, they have to obviously the cost of, of just uh, transportation uh, itself, and then, of course, the, the cost of follow-up visits. Um, I had a, a number of patients who were treated either in Europe, uh, specifically in London, uh, or actually in India. Uh, in Seattle, where my practice is based, we have a, a large um, East Indian population. A lot of people work at Microsoft or Amazon, and uh, they would go home to Hyderabad or to Delhi, uh, and have the cross-linking done. Or they would take their children home to Delhi or Hyderabad and have the cross-linking done and then come back and see me for follow-up. And that was really frustrating. That's kind of mind-blowing, yeah. <laughs> um, we, of course, the FDA, we have had some some great technical advances uh, in recent years. As a clinician, what, what, have, some been, some, what have been some of the more important uh, products that have come out that have, that have helped you uh, treat your patients? I'd say uh, some of the products include the presbyopic correcting uh, lens implants, the IOLs, and I think the, the different um, presbyopic IOLs have really made a great difference in terms of patients' quality of life uh, after um, cataract surgery or a refractive lens exchange, and the ability to not just functionally uh, correct a cataract, um, but to actually improve on patients' quality of life on both the quantity and quality of the vision uh, has been uh, really, really exciting uh, to offer them. Of course, there's still a lot of uh, IOLs um, that are in the pipeline and don't have FDA approval yet or others in clinical trials, uh, and so it'll be exciting to see uh, what the new um, technologies bring. Um, the uh, approval of femtosecond lasers for both uh, cataract surgery and corneal surgery has also been a, a uh, huge, huge uh, improvement in technology over the last number of years as well. And so I'd say, you know, every year there's new technological advances and uh, approvals that let us better help our patients and offer them a greater variety of uh, techniques and technology to have access to. Is there one uh, one thing in particular that has you chomping at the bit that you can't wait to have it get through the FDA and get into your hands? Any technology or product? Um, I would say one of the things that I'm really um, waiting for is to have uh, other uh, femtosecond lasers approved for corneal work. Uh, currently, there's only one laser that's approved for corneal work. Um, when I do cornea transplants, uh, the full thickness transplants that I do or the, um, the DALC uh, transplants, um, I utilize a femtosecond laser, so I utilize femtosecond laser-assisted uh, corneal transplantation, which is an amazing improvement over the traditional steel blades um, that are utilized. And to date, there's uh, one laser um, that's used, and I use that laser, and, and that's great, uh, but it would be nice to have 
um, advances and there are other lasers out there um, that have approval in Europe. Uh, for example, in, in the U.S., just the uh, AMO um, intralace laser is approved for corneal work, but I know that the Victus, which is a B&L product, um, they have approval in Europe and they're actively using their laser for corneal work in Europe and I mean for corneal transplants. And so it'd be nice to have the opportunity to utilize uh, other lasers um, and to have more access to technology. Um, because for patients, what this means is it means um, better outcomes, it means shorter healing time, it means uh, shorter healing time is uh, translates to faster return to work and faster visual rehabilitation as well as stronger wound healing. Excellent. We'll take a quick break to hear this message and we'll be right back. Join the innovators, entrepreneurs, and investors who are changing healthcare at MedTech Investing Conference on May 6th in Minneapolis. The premier event in MedTech Investing will bring together the industry's investors, entrepreneurs, strategics, and regulatory professionals in one of the country's richest MedTech communities, Minneapolis. This must-attend conference will leave attendees with the insights and connections necessary to find their own sure path to success. To register for the MedTech Investing Conference, go to www.medtechconference.com. And we are back. Let's zoom out uh, a little bit, look more globally. Uh, you know you're involved, uh, you're on the Medical Advisory Board of SightLife, uh, which looks like a fantastic organization. Can you tell us a bit about your role, what they do, and, and what your role has been? Sure. Uh, SightLife is the only global health organization that is committed to eliminate corneal blindness worldwide. And corneal blindness is uh, just a, an incredible uh, problem. Um, the highest prevalence, actually, of corneal blindness um, is in India, uh, followed by uh, sub-Saharan Africa and uh, a lot of the nations there. And the actually the exciting thing about um, uh, about our mission is that it is achievable, and so it is. It, an achievable goal to um, mostly eliminate corneal blindness uh, in our lifetime. And that's what's so exciting about working with SightLife. Uh, the work that we do at SightLife, uh, I'm on the medical advisory board. Uh, I do a lot of surgeon training. And so we have the, uh, when we uh, go and do a um, training, um, it's not just one of those mission trips where you go, you do a bunch of surgery, and then you, you leave. Um, it's really the concept of teaching someone to fish. And so what SightLife does is provides a lot of the technology and resources available for setting up the eye banks themselves. So this isn't a situation where we bring over a bunch of corneas, we teach surgery uh, with some fancy equipment, and then we're out of there. It's actually creating a model of sustainability, and that's one of the main reasons that I decided to work with SightLife was because of the sustainable model. And so um, iBanks are applied to be a SightLife uh, associated iBank. Um, they are given seed money as well as resources for iBank management, um, resources for obtaining corneas, uh, how to obtain corneas in their local area, evaluate those corneas, um, screen the corneas, and then distribute the corneas for use. 
And through this now uh, in India, which is where I've been working with SightLife um, on the India project, now about 48% of all corneas transplanted in India are through SightLife associated eye banks, which is amazing. And that's been in the last six years we have um, we've, uh, achieved that. So in the last six years, we've gone from zero when we started the project to now 48% of all corneas in India are from SightLife associated eye banks. Uh, part of this had, had been to have an on-site eye bank donation counselor. So there's someone who is in hospital so that when a uh, patient dies, uh, they are able to approach the family in a very, very professional and sensitive fashion and talk about the importance of eye donation, cornea donation. Uh, and so that has helped to achieve really uh, much, much higher rates of, um, of donation. There's outreach in terms of education uh, for the population about uh, corneal donation and uh, organ donation. Uh, and then also to help the eye banks themselves, to help the staff there for the tools and techniques for screening tissue and for evaluating tissue, preparing the tissue and then distributing the tissue. Um, there's an eye bank in Hyderabad, uh, Ramayana eye bank, which is the first eye bank in all of India to have pre-cut tissue. And this is really relevant because, uh, for example, if we look what's happened in, in corneal transplant over the last decade in the U.S., since the advent of uh, endothelial keratoplasty techniques, now 50% of all cornea transplants in the U.S. are partial thickness transplants, and most of those being uh, endothelial keratoplasty, either DSEC or to a smaller degree DMEC. Um, the concept of DSEC uh, and soon DMEC uh, are more recently introduced in India, but one of the challenges there is that surgeons um, cut their own tissue. And that's time consuming, as well as uh, there's more tissue wastage that way. But if you have a pre-cut center that can then distribute tissue, then you're going to have a lot more success and a lot more uh, adaptation of the, of the procedure. I was recently a few weeks ago on another training mission uh, in Hyderabad uh, with uh, LB Prasad there, the really great uh, friends and colleagues there. And uh, we did another uh, DSEC course to train surgeons to be able to do DSEC in their local communities. These were corneal transplant surgeons that had been fellowship trained and are in practice, but didn't have the resources or the ability to learn these newer techniques. And so we had a lot of hands-on one-on-one um, -on -one training and mentorship. And in fact, my trainee is back in her local area in Jaipur in India and is already performing DSEC. So it's really, really rewarding. That's remarkable. How often do you go on these, on these training missions? I go about once a year. Really? And how did you come to learn of the organization and become involved? Well, I've been involved as a cornea transplant surgeon. I've been involved with SightLife, which started out as our local eye bank. Uh, over uh, since I've been in practice. And over the last uh, six years um, or so, uh, Monty Montoya, who's the CEO of SightLife, uh, he has this vision of becoming, uh, of really curing corneal blindness and eliminating corneal blindness worldwide. And so they embarked on uh, this project uh, first in India and now extending to some other countries as well. Um, 
initially in terms of the global mission, it was uh, actually um, some interesting circumstances. I was actually invited to India uh, to be a keynote speaker at a meeting there. And uh, the meeting was in um, Mumbai and then uh, um, Ahmedabad. Unfortunately, and very, very sadly, it was around the, the time um, that there were the bombings in Mumbai that year uh, and with the terrorist attacks, uh, which uh, soon followed after the terrorist attacks in, in uh, Ahmedabad. And so in uh, Gujarat, the state of Gujarat. And so what happened was the meeting ended up being canceled. But I had already blocked off about three weeks to go to India to do the meetings some travel there and such. And so what I did is I decided that just because there were terrorist attacks in a couple of cities, that wasn't going to deter me from going. And so I actually contacted SightLife and told them I had this extra time and I was going to India and was wondering if there was any way that I could add value. And they had just had some contact with a couple of iBanks there. And there was a surgeon who was in uh, Kerala, which is a southern state in India, and in uh, Cochin. And she's the only cornea surgeon there for several million people. And she really wanted to learn some advanced keratoplasty techniques as well as some uh, DSEC, uh, endothelial keratoplasty techniques. And so um, what I did is I decided to, since I had the time, I would just go over and train her. And so we had a, a great time and uh, was able to add some value in that way of, of training this, um, this surgeon and then spend some time traveling and meeting people and making lots of friends. So it was uh, a wonderful opportunity. And that was, that was basically how it began. And then soon after that, SightLife was expanding the, the global mission throughout India. And so from the beginning, I have been very, very integrally involved with the surgeon training. On this last surgeon training, I also was able to bring some instruments um, from company MST, very, very graciously donated some uh, decimase stripping forceps. And so we're able to leave that and give that as a gift uh, to the institution where I was, where I was training. And it's um, the need there. When you go there, the need is so great. I always say that um, I go there and they always give me these crazy, complicated cases that are nothing like I've ever seen before. And it's a challenge and, and it's fun. And, and the, the other surgeons there are just so um, hungry for information and really want to learn and the residents and fellows, as well as the other surgeons coming in for the programs, um, there's just this excitement and this um, hunger for knowledge. And it's, and, and again, the patients, the need is so, so great. And so it's just a wonderful to be able to, to teach and learn. And then I, I come back to my own practice and the most complicated case that I'll see in my own practice, and, and I do have a tertiary, you know, referral practice, I'll be like, meh, you know, most complicated, most complicated case that I'll get in the, the U.S. is like one of my easiest cases in India. And so it gives me also renewed vigor for, for my own practice as well. Um, but, you know, you go there and especially actually for, for women and girls, um, if you have corneal blindness, then uh, a girl who has corneal blindness may not be able to uh, go to school, continue with school 
for example, or we had one patient there that we treated who was this young woman and she, because of her corneal blindness, she was not able to care for her children. So she actually had to send her children away to be cared for by somebody else. And she felt that she was less of a woman because she couldn't care for her own children. She was not able to cook as well for her husband uh, and, and do these sorts of things. And so for her, this was just um, a, a huge life-changing event to be able to have a transplant and to help her with corneal blindness. Um, I've met some of these, you know, the children that we operate on and just the fact that uh, you're able to help train surgeons who will then help um, people of all ages. But uh, again, a lot of the, the people in, in India who have corneal blindness, they're, they're a lot younger than you'll see here. Um, it, it makes a huge, a huge difference in their lives. Um, if you, I had this one gentleman who was corneal blind, he was being brought in, he was an older gentleman being brought in by his grandson. And so his corneal blindness, not just affected him, but it affected his son. It affected his family because there was the whole community who had to care for him. And the next day after we took the bandage off and he was able to, to walk out because he was able to see enough to use his cane and to actually uh, navigate on his own, that meant that his grandson wouldn't have to take care of him day in and day out. You know, his grandson could now uh, go back to school. Um, his granddaughter uh, and his daughter wouldn't have to do all of the help him with the self-care, including, you know, going to um, the bathroom, uh, cooking, not just the cooking, but the eating. Uh, so they wouldn't have to, to feed him. And so this was really life-changing, not just for the patient, but also for the patient's family. And, and that's what you, you see in India uh, that's, really, um, that's really remarkable. And again, as I said, the, the need is so great there. Yeah, but you said it's, it's curable, that we can, we can do this. What, what is standing in the way? Is it a, a, a supply of corneas? Is it a supply of surgeons and knowledge or lack of either? What is uh, what? What will we? What do we need to get to where you want to be? Um, actually, it really comes down to money. So that's I'd say that the, the main resource that's missing there is um, is funding, and so it's funding for more programs, funding for more training programs. Uh, obviously, there needs to be an increase in corneal donation and more eye banks to help um, to process those corneas. And then, um, of course, uh, more access to surgeons and to the technology. Um, but uh, a lot of this could really be achievable by with increased funding uh, for the programs um, so that we can, you know, train more iBank personnel and train more surgeons and uh, have more um, facilities. And so I think that's really one of the, you know, the, the main challenges there. We'll make sure we get the URL for the organization up in the email that we send out with this podcast. So maybe That's someone great. will will contribute. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for taking the time today. I appreciate it. You bet. Thank you for joining us on this OIS podcast. And thank you, Audrey Tally Rostoff, for sharing your story about Sight Life and your work in Seattle. Uh, if you would like to contribute to Sight Life somehow, go to sightlife.org. There's plenty of ways to come involved, and there's a big gold contribute button that you can click and uh, help as you see fit. We hope you will join us next week.
for another tale of innovation here at OIS Podcasts. And of course, we look forward to seeing you at OIS at Assers. It's not too late to register. Go to ois.net and we'll see you in San Diego. Join the Surgical Ophthalmology Innovators on April 16th in San Diego for OIS and ASCRS, where you will see and meet the leading companies and clinicians. The now expanded program features a showcase of emerging technologies to treat the most pressing anterior segment diseases, while also including plenary talks and discussions around business, regulatory, and finance. Hear what Jim Mazo has to say. I would tell you that OIS is now the come-to meeting in ophthalmology, and the reason is, is you're able to bring industry, practitioners, innovators in one audience discussing not what's happening today, but what's happening tomorrow. Very rarely do you have a meeting where you're discussing the future of an industry. You're usually talking about the presence, and that's why people come to this meeting, because they're hearing about things today that will impact our industry tomorrow. Visit OIS.net and sign up today.